0: Hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett. I'm a leadership speaker and a retired Air Force Colonel. This month, we're gonna spend our time together talking about the work of a government organization you likely haven't heard of, but whose mission is one of the most important things we do as a country. And that is identifying, recovering, and bringing home the remains of US military personnel from past conflicts who have been listed as prisoners of war or missing in action. The organization is called the Defense, POW, MIA, Accounting Agency, or DPAA, because I'm a big fan of acronyms within acronyms. And the work they do is a sacred obligation for our nation. Most importantly, it helps bring closure for American families who have often lived for years, decades, or even generations without knowing what happened to their loved ones who served in the military. Today, we're gonna hear from two individuals who have experienced that work firsthand, two sides of the same coin, if you will. First, we'll chat with forensic archeologist, Allie Campo. Her work with the DPAA takes her around the world with one mission, identifying and bringing America's military heroes home to their families. She's on the ground, literally, and in the lab, working to give families the answers and peace they deserve. Then we'll welcome someone who has been working for years to tell the unique story of one of those lost heroes, a Medal of Honor recipient whose remains were recently identified thanks to the work of the DPAA. It's the story of Army Chaplain Father Emil Capin, a priest of the Diocese of Wichita who risked his life as a spiritual servant to troops on the front lines of the Korean War. When he was taken captive by the enemy, Father Capin continued to serve and bolster the morale of his fellow prisoners often at the expense of his own health, until his death at the camp on May 23rd, 1951. But his story didn't end there. In 1993, the Catholic church declared Father Capen a servant of God, which is the first step towards a possible canonization. It's amazing, right? That's why we are so thrilled to welcome Scott Carter of the Catholic Diocese of Wichita to tell us the remarkable tale of Father Capen's bravery, sacrifice, loss, and finally, rediscovery 70 years after his death. So hang on, this is going to be an exciting ride. And before we start off with Miss Allie Campo, I must come clean and tell you that Allie is actually my niece and my birthday buddy. So you will most definitely hear the pride of an aunt come through, but trust me, once you hear the work that Allie and all of DPAA does, you will be proud too. So with that, it is my pleasure to welcome Allie Campo to the Mission Inspire podcast. Hi, Ali. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for making the time. We deal with the time zone uh, math and, and all that fun stuff and schedule deconfliction. So I, I am so excited to have you here and I am so proud of you and I'm so honored um, that we get to share and, and and talk about the the work that you do and the organization does. So first, we want to know a little bit about you and the mission of DPAA and the work that you do to help identify and bring home these American military heroes.
1: All right, well, a little bit about myself, as you mentioned, my name is Ali Campo and I've been working for DPAA for the last four years. I live in Honolulu, Hawaii and I work out of Hickam Air Force Base. So hard life, I know. Um, So a little bit about DPAA. We are a Department of Defense agency and we're mandated with providing the fullest possible accounting of missing U.S. service members from past foreign conflicts. So when we talk about missing, we're really addressing the people who were um, POWs, those determined to be missing in action, MIA, and then also those who were deemed KIA, killed in action, but whose bodies were not yet recovered. So DPAA employs subject matter experts from all different types of fields to really help in this pursuit to fulfill Um, our mission. So my role as a forensic archaeologist really includes helping to plan and execute field missions to locate, recover, and repatriate the remains of U.S. service members. So like you mentioned before, I deploy globally, often to sometimes remote parts of the world you've never thought of, um, to conduct archaeological surveys and excavations to find these remains because as we know, often many of the remains we're looking for were in plane crashes and planes do not crash in the best locations hence why they often crashed. So um that's why we're there on the ground trying to find them. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. What you know, it's like even when I hear the word forensic archaeologist, like first of all, I can't believe that my niece is a forensic archaeologist, but that sounds like such a cool title. So how did you get involved with forensic archaeology? And then also what drew you specifically to the DPAA and their mission?
1: Yeah. So forensic archaeology is really like a niche community within our archaeology. So came to this job historical uh, archaeology. I used to work at a house museum, James Madison's Montpelier, looking at the enslaved community there. And then I heard about this job opportunity from a family friend. Um, so he told me about the mission and the work and what it involved. And immediately I was just captivated by the idea that like my skills and training could have this functional purpose of locating the remains, right. which could then be returned to the family members. Because for me, as somebody who comes from a family that has multiple military service members in it. The goal really was a personal one. I knew that active duty military was not really my path in life, but this is my way of serving my country and really paying homage to the sacrifice of so many, that so many did for our country.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I and, it, and it's so rare that, uh, so, you know, Aunt Jenny and I both have degrees in something that we never used in the military. So it's, it must be so fulfilling to actually have a degree in something, a passion for it, a specialty in it, a master's degree in it, and then have a job where you utilize all those skills and passions. So I'm, I'm so glad oh, yeah. to see, I'm so glad to see that that stuff fits and that's great. And you mentioned um, the, one of the things that DPAA brings is all the, the, subject matter experts, but I was, I was doing some digging and we call it stalking or internet research, whatever you want to call it. But you guys have anthropologists, archaeologists, of course, like you are historians, forensic dentists, divers, explosive ordnance disposal technicians, special forces medics, and all these really, really just fascinating, um, just fascinating jobs that you just, you think about, you'd see on CSI and all these other cool things. So that's really, uh, that's really fascinating to me. And I know a lot of our listeners, but you guys also have this skeletal identification laboratory. uh, And then like everything at Hickam, there's this cutting edge, uh, cutting edge facility that you guys have in lab to do all this accounting, right? Yes. That's that is so fascinating. So your job is not just on the ground in these these bizarre places. Like last time, I think a couple of weeks ago, you were in the Philippines, and you've been to Laos, no. and you've been to Romania. And now I can't even keep up with you. <laughs> but but DPA is saying that there's there's almost eighty two thousand Americans who are still missing from World War II or the Korean War, Vietnam, Cold War, Gulf Wars, and all these other conflicts, which is heartbreaking but what really is helping the nation heal is to know that the DPAA and people like you and all the specialties that are there are doing the work that you guys do, going on the grounds and then bringing those, uh, those remains back to help identify um, everything. So, I, I mean, I think it's, I'm gonna say it's a rhetorical question to say that you guys probably have this sense of mission and purpose and that, that just that pride
1: that you got to get to do that, is that, is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, with so many individuals yet to come home, so many so many family members who don't have answers yet, we're each just trying to do our best in our little assigned role in this greater ambitious goal of identifying all these individuals who are missing. So mm-hmm. for me, that really means just taking it one mission at a time, you know, doing my part, whether it's the best I can to figure out an excavation strategy for a location or actually doing the excavations myself. Because I remember that 82,000 is a large number, but it's made up of individual people's individual stories. So we want to get at each one of those.
0: That's really, that. there's a lot to be said in there. See, that might be the merch, the t-shirt hashtag from today. But, <laughs> uh, but so is there one mission in particular that was impactful to you?
1: Oh, yeah. I've, I've been on now seven, but there's one that really just kind of stands out. It was um, the search for an A-1E pilot named Colonel Roy Knight. And so that was in Laos. He went down in Laos um, and he was shot down in his aircraft. And the work I did for that mission in particular was really just this accumulation of all my archaeological skills and all my on-the-job training coming together into one. Because it was a crash site that we had actually visited in 1994. And during their excavations during that time, they had deemed that it was an A1E and that it was most likely him, um, but they didn't refine, they didn't find any remains. So they had deemed him accountable, accounted for, but not identified. Okay. So we, in this renewed sense of really finding remains, went back there in 2019 and we were given a grid coordinate that was a hundred by hundred meter area. And they said, just go out, <laughs> refine the crash site and find the guy. And wow. so that really We walked out there, five-foot-tall elephant grass in every direction. And, you know, you just have this moment where you're like, what did I get myself into? (laughs) (laughs) But between talking to the locals, and we had actually found one of the gentlemen was on the 94 excavation. And so I asked him if he remembered anything about it. And his information was key. He just kind of wandered the landscape while I started survey work. And he actually relocated one of the excavation areas they had targeted. And from that, I was able to extrapolate where the crash site was. And then we began the search. And in our survey where we actually, um, we came upon part of a helmet, wow. a decomposing helmet. And that, from that moment, I was like, boom, we're starting right here. And we began in that, uh, an excavation unit right there. And we found part of a name tag that said M-A-J. And at the time, Colonel Knight was actually Major Knight because he was, uh. um, uh, promoted to Colonel Knight. So, and then it was the second unit where we started finding all the teeth and the joy that came throughout the whole entire team and all the local nationals who were working with us that were like, okay, we think we got him, nice. you know, but it really just takes the time to allow it to be sent back to the lab. And then somebody there who's a trained, uh, we have the forensic odontologists you were talking about, the dentists, Mm -hmm. and then forensic anthropologists who were able to look at what we had recovered and deem that it was Colonel Knight. So Um, that was just hands down incredible. so, So digging into this
0: story just a little bit more, is this the one that you were there searching on his birthday? Yes. Can you so, tell me a little this this okay? I'm telling you people, this may be my niece and I may be really proud, but <laughs> listen to what this professional from DPAA did on Colonel Knight's birthday during the excavation.
1: Yeah. So while we were out there, um, we're given his records, the individual who we're always looking for. So in this case, Colonel Knight, we found out that his birthday was February first and our mission was spanning during that time frame. So I made it a point that at the end of our work day on February 1st. We all went out together and I had brought a beer with me and so I cracked open a beer and I poured one on the ground and we sang happy birthday to him and it was the first time in over 50 years that somebody had sang happy birthday to him and it was just the entire team really like felt that that was just one of the key moments of the mission.
0: Oh all right I warned you before we started not to make me cry and I'm right on the verge so Okay. So basically, 52 years after he was shot down, after Major Knight, posthumously promoted to Colonel Knight, was f- shot down, 52 years, years later, and over his birthday, you I found his helmet. I think you also found a boot sole, right? Wasn't that
1: one of the pictures I saw? Yeah, we found a boot sole, part of um, the helmet label itself. Uh, and then, yeah, just a couple of uh, small things of material evidence, but then the real victory was in finding all the teeth.
0: Yeah. And then that's when the, the what did you call him an odontologist? Odontologist, forensic odontologist. Yeah.
1: Okay. For all of us uh, layman
0: people, that means a dentist. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. But that, there's more to this story though, too. And I think this is another reason that personally connects you is uh, he was flown back on the 9th of August back to Dallas Love Field, which is where he had a, uh, I think 52 years prior had flown out of Dallas Love Field, but his remains were flown back by his son and his funeral was on the 10th of August. And can you tell us
1: anything about the funeral? Yes. So I was actually on the East coast just prior for um, a family wedding. And I had found out we always are kind of kept up to date on if there are going to be public funerals for any of the individuals who we've helped identify. And so I found out that if I just changed my ticket by one day, I could do an extended layover in Dallas so that I could attend um, the memorial and then funeral. So, and I like to kind of point out, this isn't common. Like often we go out on these missions and we never get to meet the family members, but my coworkers really encouraged me. They said, if you ever get the chance, do what it takes, meet the families, it'll make all the difference. And to this day, forever grateful that I did because I was lucky enough to go and meet the entire family um he has two colonel knight has two living siblings and then his three children and then just handful of grandchildren great-grandchildren and I was able to bring some small items from Laos to share with them um like a challenge coin as well and just speak with them about the recovery and what we did and get give, give them the inside scoop that they didn't hear about in the report itself and it was amazing. Oh, that is so fantastic.
0: I'm just so proud of you. That that just uh, and again, like we talked about there's so there's still the 82,000 people in account of different conflicts, American service members who are missing. And like you said, it's that's a daunting number and it's a heartbreaking number, but that the, each one represents a story, but that you were so inextricably woven with that story. And even the the the, uh, the national who was on your team, the third, what do you call them, third connection? I'm, I'm messing that up. Even oh,
1: the, the local member, nationals. The local <laughs>
0: national, thank you. The local national who was on your team. Um, who had been part of the search in 94 was able to kind of redirect you and get in the right spot. And that just, that, you know, this the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I think there's so many people that get, get daunted by the 82,000. And if we just kind of focus on the one story, the next thing, the next thing, uh, and you have this great, just, and you will forever be tied with that family. And I think that is fantastic. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing for listeners who may not know um, for Vietnam, um, missing in action and killed in action uh, at the Vietnam wall, there are uh, each name is preceded or followed by a symbol which denotes their status. And there are three symbols. Uh, a diamond means the, the person was confirmed um, KIA, killed in action. There's a cross if the person is unaccounted for or missing. So like Colonel Knight's name on the Vietnam wall would have had a a, a plus or a cross before it. And then a diamond is superimposed over a cross if a service member is missing and then becomes accounted for. So Colonel Knight, I don't know if he got it last year, but around Memorial Day, they go and re-engrave, um, the, they change the, the pluses or the crosses, and they engrave a diamond over top of it. So I know that you have a couple other people on that wall, but Colonel Knight is probably one of the most significant ones that had a plus and is now a diamond, thanks to the work that you all did, yes?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's a really cool opportunity because I get to go back to the Vietnam Wall every once in a while, still having family in Virginia. And it's just this very som- somber moment, but also it's filled with a lot of joy because you can see that there are so many crosses that are being changed over and knowing that you were a part of that. Just sure humbling.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I think the other thing too that would that surprise me when you first got this job was I had no idea, and uh, you know, I spent nearly three decades in in the um, in the military, and I had no idea that a there were so many people still missing and unaccounted for. Nor did I know that we had an a, an agency dedicated to recovering those people and bringing them home and bringing those families closures. And again, if we focus on the one story, that is so important that, you know, just like you said, no one had sang happy birthday to him for 51 years. And for 52 years, his family just had nothing to bring them closure, nothing to bury and nothing uh, just, to, to, just to close that chapter in their life. And so I think it's so great that DPAA or the DPAA, because the jury's still out, um, is doing things like that. And so I'm so grateful that this organization exists and is, is doing this, uh, bringing this closure um, and what I mentioned in the beginning was one of the most recent identifications from DPAA was of Army Chaplain Emil Capen, and he was originally awarded a Distinguished Service Star, and then President uh, then President Barack Obama in 2013 upgraded that uh, to the Medal of Honor. So, I, I mean, I, I know you weren't specifically involved in that particular one, but how significant is it for your organization to identify a Medal of Honor recipient? Um, and, and this is one, particularly one who's the, the love for his brothers in the words of President Obama was so pure that he was willing to die so that they might live. How significant is that for the for DPAA and for all of the professionals that work there?
1: Yeah, so each identification is really important because right, it's another individual who's coming home, but many of their stories are lost to us because we don't know what went on in their final moments and because there's nobody to really tell their story. So whenever we have the identification of a Medal of Honor recipient, it's truly unique because we know their stories, we know their sacrifice and their selflessness is remembered through other people telling us about it. So it allows for this deeper reflection of the work we're doing and what it means. And for Father Capon in particular, this is an individual who's willing to die to provide comfort and hope to his brethren who were suffering, wounded, ill, And now, even in his death, he's still providing that hope for these family members who Mm. their loved one hasn't been recovered yet. So in that, I think it's just this beautiful remembrance of somebody who was selfless, who did all the work during their life. And that legacy just continues on even after death.
0: That's really powerful that he's still providing hope. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All right, Allie, this has been just, it's just so great. I am so proud of you. And I'm so glad that we're able to share what you and all of DPAA are doing. And I love that, that you're providing help because that's what you guys are doing. And that's what Medal of Honor recipients are done uh, are doing is still providing help, whether it's through the legacy posthumously or the, those who are living recipients are still doing. Um, but just to know that we're doing everything that we can as a country to ensure that those who, like you said, selflessly served and sacrificed everything for our country will not be forgotten and will not be left behind. So as I said at the top and in the middle and near the end and and probably in in the beginning, uh, I am so proud of you. And I'm so proud uh, of everything that you're doing and everything that DPAA does. And I'm so proud as an American to know that we do this and we take care of, of those people and bring them back to their families to bring those families closure. So I just want to say, Allie, thank you so much for joining us and being a part of this. It has been an honor and a pleasure, and I'm so glad to see you and doing well.
1: Thanks. I'm so proud to be a part of DPAA and proud to be a part of this podcast of you guys telling the story of so many individuals who did so much for us. So Thank you so much for taking the time to allow this to happen.
0: Yeah, no, this is great. And then, uh, yeah, we'll make sure when the uh, the Medal of Honor Museum gets up and going in Arlington, Texas, you come in from Hawaii, I'll come in from the East Coast, we'll meet in the middle and uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Can't wait. Cool. Thank you again, Allie, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to see you and talk to you. And now to continue this story, I am so honored to welcome Scott Carter of the Catholic Diocese of Wichita as we learn more about the inspiring life and legacy of the Medal of Honor recipient, Emil Capen. Scott, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today.
2: Thanks, Mo. It's uh, really an honor to be here with you.
0: Thank you so much. So Scott, can you tell us a little bit about Father Capin's life and what led him to military service as an army chaplain?
2: Yeah, so he was born in uh, 1916 in a very small farming community. It was primarily Czech, Bohemian at the time, is what they they called it, and uh, primarily Czech parents, a little bit of German influence there, and so that might uh, that may explain kind of the the whole name pronunciation thing. I know that there's a couple of different ways that it's commonly pronounced, uh, Capen or Capon. We kind of say Capen here around Wichita, and a lot of the rest of the world says Capon. So. Um, A little bit throw that in, you know, trying to pronounce things here in America, and I think that that explains it. (laughs) But um, you know, he had a very simple life. The Catholic faith was really at the center center of the community. I'd say you know he he loved to fish. He grew up helping on the farm, doing chores around the house. He was really a pretty ordinary kid, an ordinary boy. But he did always have a special connection, I think, with God and a special desire to serve others. And as he grew older, those two kind of came together as as he uh, started to have a desire to become a priest and really even to be be a missionary. Now he was ordained just for the, the Diocese of Wichita and actually got sent back to his home parish in Pilsen, which is about an hour 15 outside of Wichita. But it wasn't long before World War II started and the U.S. was involved and he really felt the calling to be an army chaplain. And so he actually was able to enter uh, the Army Chaplain Corps in 1944 and was sent over to Burma and India. Uh, came back to the Diocese of Wichita after that, but uh, just continued to feel that tug. And I think in uh, late 1948, he reentered and eventually found himself in Japan when the Korean War broke out. And he was with the the First Cavalry Division, and so they were some of the first troops to be sent over to the battlefield about three weeks after the war started. And you know, as a chaplain, he could have kind of stayed back at the aid station and and behind the lines, but he decided that where he needed to be was right there with the men on the front lines and in the foxholes and um, pretty remarkable. I think uh, one of the the most common images of him, there's two, there's one helping uh, another soldier off the battlefield after just weary of two weeks worth of fighting at night and um, just awful conditions. And another is that the picture of him celebrating mass uh, on the hood of a Jeep. And I think it's, it's so cool. It says so much because Here he is, he's got his his priest vestments on, but you look down and he's wearing his combat boots and the hood of the Jeep there and he was he was there with the men and at times he celebrated mass under artillery fire Mm -hmm. Uh, at times he he pulled men off the battlefield and he just really earned his way into the hearts of the men that he served with
0: absolutely yeah i mean and you said the word remarkable and his exploits were remarkable and i know exactly what picture you're talking about that that picture is so powerful because of if again if you look at it really carefully all the things that you can pick out and and you can tell a lot about him um and how father capeen was repeatedly risking his life uh, to minister to the spiritual and physical health um, of the troops under his care. And I know he reached out to people who maybe were of of a strong faith-based religion, or even if they weren't, I mean, I know he, he brought a lot of hope and courage to them, especially when people needed it the most. And then he endured brutal conditions as a prisoner of war while still tending to and inspiring his fellow prisoners. And I know he was hearing confessions and he was very ill and on the brink of death himself. So you mentioned a couple of stories about him ministering in the artillery and in the foxhole, foxholes. Is there a story of Father Capen that you believe perfectly captures the person that he was and the heroism he exhibited during these very dark times?
1: Oh, making you, so, think,
0: uh, yeah, making you think now, putting you on the spot.
2: Yeah, it is so hard because I mean, honestly he did just so many little things. Um, really to get a good picture of what the prisoner war camp was like, I mean, it helps to understand the conditions here there. Uh, he's captured in November. They get uh, hundreds of other troops in November and then later in January. And this was the coldest winter that Korea had on record up to that point, at least. And it got down to maybe negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the men were dying. They, they, they could freeze to death. They were starving, obviously sickness and illness was going around the camp, uh, lice later. And, up to two dozen men dying a day from the cold, from the starvation, and wow. a lot of people, yeah, were just giving up hope. They were discouraged, saying this isn't worth it, and and they would die. And he was just bound and determined to do little things to to help the men, whether that was uh, steal food for them, to wash their dirty clothing, uh, basically diapers,
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: to um, giving them warm water to drink, but. There's a line that I think summarizes his attitude really well. Uh, And this was when he was uh, asking to enter the chaplain corps in the first place, uh, back in 1943. He says, when I was ordained, I was determined to spend myself for God. And he said, I was determined to do that cheerfully, no matter what circumstances I would be placed in, or how difficult a life I'd be asked to lead. And, and I think that's what motivated him to be that cheerful witness. And so all those little things he did added up, but My favorite, I think the most memorable thing that the men talked about was his Easter service in 1951. And it was a cold, dreary day still, it was the end of March. And the men were forbidden to have any sort of religious services, but he said, it's Easter, we have to do something. And so he led all the officers, they were separated the officers from the enlisted men. Mm -hmm. He led all the officers out uh, to the steps of this bombed out church and, and he led them in prayer. And he didn't just start with the resurrection. He started with the stations of the cross. Mm-hmm. He started with the suffering of Christ, so that he could remind the men that everything that they're suffering, Jesus is, has gone through it. He's here with us. And then, you know, he led to that that hope of the resurrection. And they ended by singing. They sang the Lord's Prayer, but they also sang um, the Star Spangled Banner. They sang oh, God wow. God bless or God Save the Queen for the the uh, British soldiers that were with them and And that singing reverberated down through the camp. So it's just a, a powerful moment.
0: And I know that did not please his captors uh, no. very well. So good, good for him. I'm all about uh, rocking the boat. Uh, so you you talked about him being cheerful, and one of the things I read uh, very consistently was his sense of humor and just that positive spirit. And I and and I know what thou shalt not steal, but I think uh, this was a different time here. And I know that he yeah. also stole some uh, bricks and some fire. And I was reading about how he would make hot water. You mentioned that he would make warm water for everybody, and he would go around and uh, say cheerfully coffee, everybody, and pour a little bit of hot water into someone's bowl or their cup. And I think those little things, even though we all know we're drinking warm or, you know, tepid water, um, just the thought that it's coffee and the thought that can someone can be so positive and cheerful is, again, another testament to him living out his life's mission of, of being a cheerful servant uh, to God and to the to the men he's imprisoned with. So I think that's awesome. Now, last month, this was the exciting news. Seventy years after Father Capen died in that camp that we were talking about, news that so many people had been waiting for for so long finally came. Father Capen's remains had been identified. So my question to you is, how did you hear the news, and how did that feel?
2: Yeah, um, it was amazing. <laughs> I uh, uh, I was actually preparing lunch. It was it was twelve oh five on March fourth, and uh, was in in the workroom and uh, the break room, and I. I got a call from my boss and he says, Hey, are you sitting down? And I could tell that he wanted to tell me something. And I, I didn't, I thought it was going to be somewhat minor. So I was like, uh, oh, I'll, I'll go to my office, shut the door. And he shares the news that the, the Capon family had been in touch with him and that they had identified father's remains. And I literally was like jumping up and down and uh, screaming internally because I was trying to not let all my coworkers know because it was <laughs> still supposed to be under wraps, but I wanted to go running and yelling, the halls and uh yeah it's just incredibly exciting thankfully thankfully news came out later that night and so we didn't have to hold it uh hold it secret for too long
0: yeah well it's a good thing you weren't sitting down if you're gonna jump up and down when you get yeah. that news so that's <laughs> that is worthy of jumping up and down for that's really really i, I love the fact it's 12 5, march 4th you know but, oh man so. <laughs> yeah. if you're gonna guess scott that's not helping no i'm just joking that's awesome <laughs> So now in the first part of this episode, we talked with a forensic archaeologist at DPAA, the DOD, POW, MIA, accountability agency, uh, Ali Campo. Had you ever been following the work of DPAA? Were you familiar with their work? Or what did you know about that organization?
2: Yeah, actually, uh, I was pretty familiar from afar, I guess you could say. Um, When we, some news came out you know for probably 50 60 years it was assumed that father capon was buried in a mass grave there in north korea and that the only way we were getting him back was if somehow relations with the north koreans improved but we found out that he actually was buried uh, in the town there not too far from the death house the hospital Mm -hmm. and um, because of that there was a good chance that he was maybe in the national cemetery in hawaii and so when i learned that i had an opportunity to kind of follow one of the the press briefings, the family briefings that the DPAA gave. And I just, I loved it. I, I've always been a bit of a science nerd myself. And so I just love the the work that they're doing and the progress that they've been able to make. Yeah. It's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, IDing these men. And to be honest with you, I think something that I said, and or however many um, still unidentified, but right they're all made up of individual people with individual stories and i think mm-hmm. um that was father capen's attitude as well he would uh, frequently write letters to the families of the men who died when he was on the battlefield and sometimes the, the other officers would volunteer to help and he said no this is this is the chaplain's duty but um i think he he does have that attitude now too of of wanting to see everybody come home and honestly I wouldn't have been surprised if he was the very last one to be identified, but I guess I guess God knew that we needed needed a little bit of love, right? Uh, still, right
0: still bringing hope and yeah. uh, and optimism. That's cool. So, what does the identification mean to the broader Catholic community? Then,
2: I think, you know, for for someone whose cause is up for sainthood, they're they're an inspiration. They're an example that we want to follow. It's it's someone we want to model um, or hold up as a model of someone who lived the gospel well, who followed Jesus's teachings, and to have the remains where people can actually come and visit and pray, uh, I think is going to be very impactful, and and maybe even lead to some potential miracles, which is a part of the part of the canonization process.
0: Yeah, I was just I, that's what was, my next question was going to be. How does that uh, impact the cause for canonization? So the. The, the identification and this this kind of a loop closure. How does that impact
2: that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think it's a big step. Uh, the Congregation for Saints does like to see, um, you know, evidence. I guess of the, that this person is making an impact. And so, right. um, I'm just excited to be able to bring him home and to to see the number of people that come and pay him respects. And um, I think it'll be be helpful for his cause. Right now, we're we're hoping that he'll be named Venerable very soon, which is kind of. Uh, the The Vatican does a really thorough investigation into his life to say, like, is this someone we think might be in heaven? And then after that, they start looking at the miracles that might be um, that we believe, you know, don't have a scientific explanation, and that would get him to blessed and saint. So it's a long process. Wow, wow. We're hoping maybe a little bit of progress here soon.
0: Yeah. Well, i didn't realize there was a i'm only lutheran which i guess is catholic light but i didn't realize there <laughs> was this whole this rank and order of precedence in that so yeah. that's interesting I, I, yeah, yeah learned something new today but every day's a school day now <laughs> so he originally received the distinguished service cross which was then upgraded to medal of honor by then president barack obama in 2013. and i also understand that it was a significant campaign by the men who served alongside father Capen for him to receive the medal of honor what is it about him, and I think we've touched on some of it, but why do you think his fellow soldiers were so inspired uh, to advocate on his behalf?
2: Well, I think uh, it it goes to show the impact that he had on their lives. That still after 70 years, they're they're advocating for him. And I think, again, Ali said something that I think gets to the heart of it is here's someone who didn't have to be with them. He was a chaplain. Uh, He didn't have to volunteer for the army in the first place. And he certainly didn't have to stay behind to get captured, but but he chose to do that. And some of the men were just in disbelief when he shared that. Right, I, right. I, I stayed. <laughs> um, but yet he was willing to, to die to provide that comfort and hope to his brothers who were suffering. Um, from a Christian side, I think he really embodied Christ for the men with all the little things that he did. Um, you talk about the Easter service that was so memorable. I don't think it was just memorable because he talked about Jesus. It was memorable because in essence, you know, he was there, kind of incarnated Jesus to these men. And I think it was so powerful. You look at it from the military side. Well, you could say that he embodied the core values of the Medal Medal of Honor, that courage, that sacrifice, the patriotism. You know, he lived it out. He was concrete. And so, you know, he gave everything for them. I think those POWs and his fellow soldiers, they they wanted to give the best that they could back. and, And that was advocating for the Medal of Honor.
0: Absolutely. No, I mean, all good reasons. And like you talked about the core values like that, too. So this was something I did not know. But in our country's history, uh, only nine chaplains have been awarded the Medal of Honor. So that's our nation's highest distinction for valor above and beyond the call of duty in battle, just like uh, volunteering for something and staying behind and being the last one out and, and putting others first in service to them. So it's it's a really unique designation for men whose mission is to serve the spiritual, moral, and physical needs of the unit. Why do you think it's important that chaplains like Father Capon continue to be considered for and to receive this highest military award?
2: Yeah, so I think when you look at, again, the values, the, the virtues that chaplains um, you know hold up, that chaplains are supposed to live and supposed to encourage, they do mesh really well with those values that, that the Medal of Honor represents. I think the values that our country is is built on, and so I think uh, it's a good reminder that we just because we're at war, we we don't. It's easy to neglect the spiritual side of us, um, right. And I think that it's it's very important uh, for all of us, but maybe even especially so for soldiers to to recognize that to uh, have support in that way. And so I don't know. I, I think. That, to have chaplains who lived so courageously, it obviously builds morale, but it also points to that higher spiritual side of things. And I think that, you know, if Chaplain Capen was with us, he'd remind us that, you know, if we're always seeking to do God's will, if we're seeking to do good in the world, then we can have the peace that God gives because we can know that God is with us. And that's whether, again, we stay at home as a parent, whether that's in our business lives or whether we're away at war.
0: Absolutely. Well, and just yeah, the idea that that permeates everything that we do, regardless of what uniform or clothes we put on in the day, what job we go to or job we stay home at and do, is is that that spirit permeates us, and that service, uh, being in service for others, I think is is great. So I'm all about selfless service, and it sounds like Father Capen was the 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 prime example of that so i'm really really i'm really really glad that he is a medal of honor recipient and i am really really glad that uh, his body has been um, identified so he can be back home and bring closure to the community and to his family as well Um, yeah
2: and uh, you know the family says hey i i mean i expected him to say hey oh this is closure but they actually were were a pretty amazing Said no, this is just the the next step in his story. Yep. well, that's a good way to. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: that's actually it's perfect. You're you're absolutely yeah. right. It's just it's it's not closure. It's kind of turning the chapter to, to the next mission that he's going to take on um, with his legacy. So that's awesome. Well, Scott, this has been an inspiring conversation. I actually learned a lot preparing for this, too. And it sounds like he was just a great guy and a funny guy and a cheerful guy. And I'm all about hanging out with people like that. Um, and the work you and the church are doing to ensure that his, Father Capen's legacy continues and endures is so important. So I want to thank you for joining us today. And I know for certain that the story of Father Capen's life and legacy will play a role in inspiring the next generation of American heroes when the National Medal of Honor Museum opens its doors in 2024, we can go, I'll go pay uh, homage to him there as well. If you wanna learn more about the National Medal of Honor Museum, please visit mohmuseum.org and please join us next time on the Mission Inspire Podcast.